This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. My guest today is Jason Wildey, joining me for the second episode on Laudato Si. Hi, Jason. Hello. How's it going? Going pretty well. Uh, Jason, to start us off, would you mind uh, reading the prayer for the protection of creation from Laudato Si? Sure. This is by Pope Francis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All-powerful God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to restore, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of the earth, so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Thanks, Jason. That's a beautiful prayer. And uh, as we get started today, so this is, as I said, our second um, episode on Laudato Si. In the first episode, we pointed out that Pope Francis has said that Laudato Si is not a green encyclical. It's a social encyclical. So in our first episode, we covered the basic principles of Catholic social teaching. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to listen to it before this one. And in this episode, we're going to start moving on to discuss Laudato Si itself by asking the question about what what is an ecological conversion that Pope Francis is calling us to? And why do we need an ecological conversion? Uh, because Laudato Si isn't addressing you know, our environmental crisis, but he's, Pope Francis is not addressing it at all in the same way that you know, a secular environmentalist would address it. Instead, Pope Francis is seeing our care for the earth as part of our relationship to God and calling us to a greater sense of conversion. As he says in chapter 2 of Laudato Si, point 75, a spirituality which forgets God as all-powerful and creator is not acceptable. That is how we end up worshiping earthly powers or ourselves usurping the place of God, even to the point of claiming an unlimited right to trample his creation underfoot. The best way to restore men and women to their rightful place, putting an end to their claim to absolute dominion over the earth, is to speak once more of the figure of a father who creates and who alone owns the world. Otherwise, human beings will always try to impose their own laws and interests on reality. So a conversion, any kind of conversion, is always a turning of life a turning away from ourselves, from our own selfishness, our own pride, and turning outwards towards God, towards our fellow human beings, and in this case, turning towards the creation that God has made. And then for our conversion, a conversion is always an inward matter, but for our uh, conversion to be full, that new orientation of spirit has to 
flow out into every aspect of our lives. So before we talk about in a, in a planned third episode, what specifically has to be changed in the outward structure of our lives together, we'll discuss here what are the aspects of this interior spirituality of conversion that Pope Francis is calling us to. There's a, there's a number of different principles that he lays out in Laudato Si. And one of the first and a good bridge from the last episode is the idea of a focus on the common good, which is an important principle in Catholic social teaching. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful starting point. And it is the starting point that Pope Francis uses as the beginning of Laudato Si. Um, it's, it's the idea that, you know, what God has given to us is not ours. It's for all of us, and it's his ultimately. And so it's our job to share it. I think we shared the quote, um, several quotes last time, but talking about that whenever we share the common good, whenever we perform a work of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice of something that is taken away from someone else. And so that is the start point of Laudato Si. And so um, he talks about, him. Pope Francis talks about himself, Laudato Si is not a green encyclical, green in quotes, it's a social justice encyclical. Um, it's a reiteration of the principle of the common good, which has taken quite some hits in the past few decades here. I mean, there's several cases, several examples where we can go through that the common good is under attack. Um, I like to think of it as, you know, we, we've had quite a few encyclicals on the dignity and rights of workers. Um, Rerum Novarum, which was the very first social encyclical, wasn't the final word. We had to reiterate it. Several popes had to re, uh, reiterate the, the uh, rights and um, workers' dignity, um, even up to Pope Francis himself. And yet it is, it is required because culture changes, society changes. And so um, talking about Laudato Si as a green encyclical is kind of short. It's actually a common good encyclical. Um, we have a lot, of, a lot of changes that have happened even in the past 20, 30 years. We have highly globalized economies that didn't exist 30 years ago. Um, we have a lot more of the health, wealth, and, dis and distribution disparity. We have a lot more politicization um, of just rights and issues around the world. Um, the, the environment, I mean, we've been seeing a lot of recent reports on the environment, the common good of the environment, our common home is taking a hit. And there's signs of that as well that Pope Francis talks about. And so this is something that I think, you know, when he came out with this encyclical, you know, five, six years ago, it was just beginning to become apparent that the common good of our home was an issue and he needed to reiterate this. And so it was part of this um, idea that as Catholics, he makes a very good point of saying, as Catholics, we need to have a voice in this issue, in the issue of the environment. If we do not speak up, if we do not use our spirituality, the, the, um, the wisdom and truth that God gave us as Christians to speak up in the, the political arena, in the public arena, in the social arena for the environment, then absolutely what you said, Malcolm, laws will be made and they will not necessarily be just laws. They will be, you know, anti, 
life laws, anti-poor um, laws. There will be a lot of things that will be under attack if we don't voice our opinion. And so that that's why he starts with the idea of a an ecological conversion, because we have to ourselves begin to understand what is the issue? Why, why is God asking us to take care of the poor and the earth? It's interesting, you know, the idea of a common good. I mean, obviously, in in the natural realm, uh, some goods you know can't be shared. You know, like a, uh, or to the extent that they can, you know, each person gets less. So, like uh, if you're sharing up cookies, each person gets less cookies. There's no, um, it, and of course, it's important as Christians to share our private goods, you know, with one another. But there are other goods that don't diminish, at least not as noticeably when when many people share them. Um, I know, Jason, you mentioned an interesting example that, uh, um, you know, like having a basic order of law in a society. It doesn't matter whether it's a million people in that society or a hundred people. For all of them, they equally share in the good of not having to constantly worry about defending themselves from uh, robbery or whatever. Whereas you told me that, you know, like in some countries, every store, every rich individual has to hire their own security because there is no such common good. Um, it's similar like clean air, our, our environment, having breathable air, um, you know, is, is not like just because, uh, you know, if you have breathable air, it doesn't mean your neighbor can't. In fact, you, neither of you can have it if both of you don't have it. And and so all these kind of, in, in the natural realm, there are some things that are common, obviously, you know, like push them to a certain limit and their commonality might break down. But they're all... Um, speaking of them as a common good reflects the very highest common good of all that the beatific vision that we're all called to is not something that we have to worry about uh, running out of. It's not something, it's not a scarce resource that we have to compete for. Uh, the love of God is, is truly infinite and is truly the ultimate common good, our common destiny there. And to the extent that we can, even in this life, we're called to take that commonality, that lack of competitiveness of heaven, the fact that we don't have to worry about someone else getting in ahead of us uh, or, or running out before we grab some for ourselves. We're supposed to, insofar as we can, take that spirituality that, that is our ultimate destiny and apply it in the here and now. If in the world to come we're not in competition all the time with one another, if we're not trying to hoard something for ourselves in the world to come, then we should try to live out the kingdom of God here and now to the extent that it is possible for us to do so. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely part of our spirituality. I mean, the miracle of the loaves and fishes, that what greater example than Jesus showing us that, you know, he can provide when we share. Um, he can provide out of just the sharing of one boy's um, basket of loaves and fishes not enough to even serve a family probably and yet he provided that's absolutely the spirituality that we are bringing into this discussion on um, ecology and the environment so when we're when we're talking about the common good here um, the common good should not be seen as um, an attack on an individual's good so like obviously with the highest example um, with the beatific vision, just because it is a common good does, does not at all mean that the individual is being um, uh, somehow losing out to make it common. You know, like you can you can think of it wrongly as like an attack on individuals for the sake of others. You know, you can see kind of this this 
demonic perversion of the idea um, actually in the Gospels when Caiaphas says, well, it's best that one man die for the people. Yeah. You know, like for, for the greater good, sometimes one man has to go to the wall, that sort of thing is not at all what we mean when we're talking about the common good. And all of us then in our daily lives should be always trying to take into account not just our, our individual personal interests, but to the, you know, whatever we're doing, we should be thinking about what effect we have on others. And there's perhaps no material aspect of our lives in which that's more true than in this case of protecting the environment. And uh, Pope Francis goes a little bit farther and he introduces the idea of uh, what we live in as a throwaway culture. Um, and it, it's a term that he uses quite often. Um, and it, it's really, it's, I mean, once you start thinking about it from the perspective of what he's trying to teach us, it is pervasive in so many realms of our our um, secular and spiritual lives, this throwaway culture. You know, obviously you can talk about it as if something is produced, you know, we, we get the sandwich bag wrapper, we unwrap the sandwich, we throw it away immediately. That This plastic that was, you know, produced for this wrapper literally existed for the sole purpose of, um, you know, one, one use. So it's a single use plastic. But it also applies in the same way to um, workers, who often are used and abused, and once they become injured, they're th just thrown away and discarded in so many um, in so many places in the world. Um, and so it comes to a human rights aspect as well. So we have to be conscious of how these sins, you know, manifest themselves in different ways in different parts of our life. Um, he goes on to explain that you know this care for creation, it's nothing that's new. It's nothing, we've, we've talked about this before, it's nothing that he came up with all by himself. It is part of this um, problem of a throwaway culture that has um, become pervasive in the last, I would say, 120 years. You know, you know who, where the, the throwaway culture, I actually did some research and um, it started back at the turn of the 20th century. Um, First decade, 1908-ish, I think, somewhere around there. This man was, he was a salesman for bottle tops. And these were cork bottle tops that actually he sold, went around, you know, to these companies and sold them for their bottles and they were used. And um, he came up with this idea, well, what if we could produce something that once it was used, it had to be thrown away? This was his, you know... It was a um, financial idea for him. And so he spent, you know, the next several years trying to produce something that with the, insole, with the sole intention of it being thrown away and someone has to buy it again. It was a great economic model, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that man, his name was King Gillette. Um, we might recognize Gillette from the name of the disposable razor now that has been around for 120 years. Um, and that idea started with let's find something as cheap as possible reproduce it so that it can be used once or twice or three times and then thrown away now with the use of other materials that we've found over the last century this has just pervaded all of our culture i mean everything that we do now is single use 
it, it, in fact, they can charge more for it now it's, if it's single use. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible economic concept that has um, changed the world over the past century. And it's really, uh, you know, creates in us a lack of respect for the world around us and for the things around us. And you're right. It doesn't, of course, doesn't just stop with things. People are thrown away. Obviously, Pope Francis connects this to abortion, that when a person is inconvenient, we find a way to dispose of them. He talks about the way we, we think we can just get rid of the elderly, either through euthanasia or through just, you know, kind of warehousing them somewhere, get them out of the way. They're no longer useful. But even I think just in, in slighter manner matters, you know, like think about how often because we move around all the time, you know, our friends are in a sense disposable. Like we'll come up with a new set, you know, and, and both the, the so-called friend and, and the person who's moving away, they, they just kind of, in many cases, kind of expect that. Like, the, our friends are not really friends, like, in the classical sense of the word, as Aristotle or as the um, saints of the past would have understood friendship. Um, they're kind of more just there for our mutual entertainment, um, you know, more, more just like acquaintances. And then, you know, like, we can always find another set of those. They're just they're, they bear the same relationship often to us as, um, you know, those workers in a factory who, you know, when they're not needed anymore, well, obviously the factory doesn't want to see them around anymore. They're, they're useful during their working hours and during their working life, but that's, that's the only interest in an economic sense that the factory owner has in them. Yeah. And, and like, it, it just seeps even, even like our, like, let alone, you know, bottle tops, like our buildings are often single use buildings. Uh, the whole stretch of major road near my house is lined with auto dealerships. <laughs> and uh, it was really strange over the 10 years I've been here. Um, the, the companies, you know, have been bought and sold many times, but for some reason they're always replacing more auto dealerships, even if it's a different brand. And usually the, the new incoming business will level the building and put up a new one in much the same shape and style, you know, and these weren't necessarily that old of buildings either. And, and so you think about this, I mean, like if it had just happened once, you know, maybe there was some hidden defect in the building, but that just seemed to be the, the norm as I watched these places come and go. And like, well, that's a lot of materials and embodied energy just to knock the building down and put it up again. But that appears to be um, the model. It's very profitable, obviously for the people who build buildings and produce raw materials, but um, it's not very, uh, it does not certainly make for, uh, an environment in which human beings feel, um, at home and comfortable, uh, you know, walking along that strip is anything but a pleasant experience. And, and yeah, there's just that, just this disrespect that, uh, manifests itself at every, at every level of our lives. Yeah. And even, I mean, as a, as a worker that would be working on those buildings to know that what you're building isn't going to stand for, you know, even 20 years, probably. I mean, what kind of dignity are, is that giving to the workers who are literally pouring sweat and sometimes blood into these buildings? Um, it, it's been really atrocious. I mean, yeah, fast food industry has been notorious for this in the past uh, 20 years or so. And now, they will just level each other and build a new, you know, canned building. And you know exactly what the building is going to be when it goes up because it looks exactly like the one three miles away. Um, they have blueprints that they just literally copy and paste. And you ask about it and they'll say, well, it's cheaper to do this way. And there's the hinge. You know, it all comes down to some kind of economics. You know, 
Um, and which is interesting because these things that you're talking about, this, you know, not valuing things and just doing extra work for no other purpose than just to make it, you know, new and, and copy paste. It's kind of the same arguments that you get a lot of times about other economic models. You know, the, um, the, the socialist economic model is often attacked for giving people work to do that doesn't mean anything. It's just for the point of them working. How are we any different when we, you know, literally plop down a McDonald's in the place that the Burger King was before and we just have to rebuild it all? I mean, you're, you're really not, um, you're doing anything other than just having people work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it causes, yeah, you're exactly right. It causes a huge problem, not only in, um, economically, but also just in the environmental model of it, all that, the footprint of what they're, you're doing, uh, buildings are incredibly, you know, have a high footprint in, in, in the resources that they take, especially modern buildings that are built out of, you know, a lot of, um, synthesized materials and materials that are kind of not really super good for the earth anyway. Um, and then, you know, we just take that model and we keep on producing it. You know, we, we keep on when that, when that fast food restaurant goes in the business, you know, if something is, is not exactly perfect, they'll throw it out. You know, it's, it just keeps on going. If a person's not exactly up to par, they throw them out. It's just a, it's a, it's a constant use, reuse, throw away, um, uh, mentality. And so this is a, it's often at odds with our care for creation and often, you know, it's more values placed on the economics than it is of what we are actually doing and the work that's actually being done. And it's also often just kind of forgotten that in terms of our spirituality and our faith, it is our duty as Christians to bring our faith into whatever model that we exist in or we live in, right? Um, and that might mean different things depending on what country you live, on what time period you live. But the point is, is that we have to ourselves understand, you know, our faith enough, be converted to understand that God created us to glorify him here on earth and to love one another. And this is where, you know, let's start with um, actually one of my favorite quotes from John Paul II that uh, Pope Francis uses. He says that he would like to show how faith convictions can offer Christians and other believers motivation to care for creation. So it's, it's, it's something that begins with the idea that God created, you know, in, in six days created the earth, the universe and everything in it. And he saw that it was very good. There's a, there's a key word there. He said it was very good once he finished creating and he created life. Um, and then in Genesis chapter two, he gave man the charge to care for creation, to till and keep it. Um, and this, this is something that Pope Francis goes into quite a bit of detail in, um, the, the difference between a modern interpretation of dominion over creation and tilling and keeping creation. They're, they're two very different terms that he wants us to understand and recognize. Um, dominion doesn't just mean that you have absolute control and you can use it for your will. It means that you should recognize what, what you're giving and what you're taking is something to be shared, not just for all of us today, but even for the generation after us and the generation after them. 
there is there is a generational solidarity that we must live into as part of our faith and we must remind ourselves constantly that what we are uh, taking from this earth should be something that can produce fruit for the next generation in in uh, pope francis's uh, explanation of genesis when he's talking about the kind of the flawed idea of um uh, you know, seeing dominion as a license to do whatever we will. Uh, this this topic actually came up in an earlier episode when I was discussing Madonna House with Augustine Tardif. And he was talking about the Madonna House farm and how um, it helps to helped him to understand the true meaning of dominion. He was taking care of this calf that uh, didn't want to drink. And so he had to bucket feed it twice or three times a day and you know there was always this struggle even though the calf was hungry it was always make things more difficult and he had to stay patient and feed this animal and he was thinking about how both it was a good you know illustration of our relationship to god you know how we often don't want what's best for us but then living that out on the on the kind of like the secondary or smaller level with our dominion over our, our fellow creatures here on earth allows us to stand for a moment in some uh, something like that godlike role and to be like God as, as we are called to be, uh, as we are created in his image to be, and have this, this loving and reverent care for all the things that are, instead of taking that um, command from Genesis as a license to do whatever it is suits ourselves. Yeah. And it's also a, a call to recognize our connectedness with, you know, all of creation, Just brothers and sisters, as he wrote in Fratelli Tutti, but also with the creatures around us who live, who sustain us. We couldn't live on this earth if there was, was no, um, other creatures or plants life on this earth, it, it would, you know, lead to disastrous human results. Um, and so we are interconnected. Um, Pope Francis also goes into a lot of the interconnectedness of all of us and of us with creation, that generate genuine care for our own lives and our own relationships with nature is inseparable from our fraternity, justice and faithfulness to others. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those interesting um, parallels that he draws in the how we treat our brother um, <laughs> has a lot to do with how we are going to treat our home. He also goes into how how do we treat for we, you mentioned it earlier. How do you treat for you know other people and do you throw them away? He he goes straight into it and says, well, how do we take care of the unborn? If we are going to just discard the unborn. Uh, if they are not exactly what we want them to be, if, you know, one little uh, chromosome is off or if there's some little slight defect or even if it's just not, you know, if it's not possible at the time, then, you know, we discard them. And ultimately, how could we care for the environment if we can't care for them and vice versa? And so if you're the the point here is, um, you know, do we have a consistent life ethic? I mean, do we as Christians live out our faith? uniformly across uh <laughs> across everything that we do honestly is everything connected in our own spiritual lives 
And that consistent life ethic, you know, that he's calling for only can really come from reverence because life is often inconvenient. Um, you know, it's not, of course, like abortion is a, is a serious sin, a, a grave sin, and can't necessarily be, you know, compared on an even level with other things. But you can see the same uh, evil logic of convenience coming out in, in many other aspects of our, our lives. And it often takes the form of replacing life with technology of some sort, something that we can dominate because life is God's. The earth is the Lord's and God's ways are not our ways. They're seldom going to be convenient for us. Whereas technology is our way. Uh, Technology is our thought projected onto the world. And therefore it's likely going to be more convenient for us. Um, And, and this, this um, in, uh, Chapter two, he's still talking about Genesis and he's saying, so to have this consistent life ethic, you need this respect. And he he talks about something the German bishops put out saying that we have to speak of the priority of being over that of being useful. That we have to value life as a sacred thing, quite apart from whether that thing is useful or convenient or fits our needs at the particular moment. And of course, when it comes to human life, the, the prohibition is absolute. You may not kill. There's never a reason to kill for convenience. In, in the created order uh, to serve human needs, we can uh, kill. Um, we, can, we can take the life of plants and animals for our own use, but only in a reverential way. And never allowing that usefulness of the creature to overcome our basic sense of reverence, it just being what it is. I remember uh, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man talks about how if we walk through a forest and can only see lumber, then we've, we've fallen from the path of wisdom. That we, we can't, the trees indeed are useful as, as lumber and it's, it's right that we humans can use them for that. But if, if primarily we see them as useful lumber, then, then we have not ha- do not, will not have this consistent ethic of life that Pope Francis is calling. So will be, that can only really come from, from that reverence. And ultimately that can only come as Pope Francis says, from seeing the creator in everything that he has made. Yeah. And it's a, also, it's a sin that, that manifests itself, it keeps on going. If you're going to not see the trees for what they are as a gift that God gave you, um, then in, you know, treating them in that way, you're more, if you're willing to tear them down, that sin is going to propagate itself. It's now going to affect other systems, other life, even human life. And that's where, you know, this, uh, this idea that, um, Laudato C is a, also an encyclical for human life. Um, it didn't really, I think that's where it hit me when I read it. You know, when I read this encyclical, I was very skeptical. I didn't really understand what he was getting at. And I didn't understand why the Pope was writing about, you know, the environment, but he talks about how, you know, there are places in this world where environmental degradation is affecting human life. And that's where that sin has manifested itself. It, it keeps going. And we have now communities that are being flooded underwater, uh, uh, entire, you know, islands that are being lost into the sea. Uh, we've, I mean, I've been in places in um, Costa Rica where 
there used to be rainforest and there is no longer rainforest. And now the people that live there are struggling to survive because the soil just doesn't support anything but rainforest. Um, and so you have forced migration now. And, you know, forced migration turns into usually conflict, wars, and other things that aren't, you know, very good either. And so that sin keeps propagating. And we have to recognize that little sin of, you know, not caring for life. It has, it, it, you're, you're giving that, um, that not caring for life the ability to spread farther in, in, in ways that we couldn't even imagine. And that, you know, like that disregard for life, especially for the lives of those who are going to be um, affected by our actions. Uh, you know, like that, that's going back to that idea of the, the common good. One of the principles of Catholic social teaching is that the earth is created for all, that there's a common destination of human goods there for everyone. God did not create any parcel of the world with a name tag on it, giving it exclusively to one of us and that the church does allow that private property is legitimate. We're not a communist. We don't hold that it's absolutely wrong to own something, but that private property is only legitimate in Catholic teaching. This goes back to the fathers of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas. It's, it's been consistent. It's no modern innovation that private property is only legitimately owned if it, if such ownership better serves the universal destination of human goods. Mm-hmm. Ownership is is not um, an excuse for just using the world's resources for oneself, because in that case, that does not serve. If that's not serving the universal common good, then it becomes illegitimate, as Saint Basil the Great would say. That's actually theft, theft from the poor. And so, in this case, the just because someone owns certain critical aspects of an ecosystem and destroys them. That's not legitimate. That that property is not rightfully theirs to destroy in that way because it will affect other people. That not, not it's it's interesting to see that modern scientific investigation has in some ways reinforced this idea of the common destination of human goods, in that we now realize that one can't um, just freely tinker around with a piece of property you own without affecting lots of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I pave over a piece of ground for a parking lot it will increase stream flow downstream. If hundreds of us pave our own private pieces of land over for our parking lot, we'll end up flooding somebody else downstream. All of this is is so closely bound together that that this modern science of of ecology and the environment uh, just just highlights what the church has always known about that the earth is meant for all and and that we have to take it into account. Yeah, and it also highlights the fact that you know, um, this ultimatum of personal freedom is in itself something that can be very dangerous. You know, um, as a part of the Christian life, we must recognize that, you know, Jesus gave up his freedom. Jesus gave up his, he gave up his life ultimately, right? He gave up everything um, for us. And as Christians, we are to do the same. we, We live in a culture that, today um, fights against this idea that there uh, is holy suffering or that we can live gospel poverty. We, we live in a culture that uh, doesn't understand those kinds of things. And yet that's what we should bring. And we should understand that me giving up just a little bit of, some, of my freedom 
or recognizing in the right spirituality that it's I'm not giving up freedom, I'm contributing to the common good for my neighbors, that in the end, we are all better people. Um, that allows us to, you know, be brothers and sisters together as one. Um, that allows us to build our relationship with our brothers, allows us to essentially, you know, end wars. But unfortunately, we live in this society that's constantly telling us these are not the right things to do. And so our relationship with one another has become confrontational. Um, we, we don't, we, we say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. We don't say that, you know, what's mine is yours. That's, that's the, the revolutionary thinking. And it, it's true too, that like in our, as you say, in our culture, yeah, those, those traditional Christian values of poverty, of fasting, of, of a certain simplicity and frugality of life that have always marked uh, the saints, you know, that that's common throughout Christian history. And suddenly those things have become um, seemingly illegitimate, even to many Christians. And think, you know, like just uh, on a practical level, think of how many environmental and social issues would uh, be solved if we could convince everyone to live a little more frugally. But of course, for the Christian, it's not just like a practical matter. For the Christian, we realize, you know, that, that gospel poverty is the call to remove the things from our lives that clutter it up, that don't allow us to properly relate to God. And then also to realize that, you know, like if there is a universal destination of human goods, then there's there's no way in which we could justify holding on to excess when our neighbor is hungry. That, you know, I, I've had some recent conversations due to some uh, um, essays I've published on poverty. And one of the things that makes gospel poverty hard for us to grasp here in the United States is that poverty is often used as a synonym of for destitution. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's not the case. It's rather the case actually that without voluntary poverty, there will be destitution, that the earth has enough for all of our needs, but not enough for anyone's greed, that if we won't live voluntary poverty, won't live um, the simplicity of life the gospel calls us to, and distribute the extra to the poor, then yes, there will be destitution. But that just because there is destitution does not mean that the gospel teaching on poverty is somehow outdated or irrelevant. Yeah. Another example that just happened, I think this year is that um, this was right after Lent. So it was, it was really striking to me is, you know, the, the Catholic tradition of fasting on Fridays during Lent fasting for meat. Um, It's, it's something that used to exist in the Christian tradition year round, right? People would fast year round pretty much except on feast days. Um, when they happened to fall on Fridays. And yet it was interesting because um, I believe it was this year, the governor of Colorado actually called for a uh, statewide um, meatless day, but it wasn't on a Friday. And it was hilarious because Christians were protesting against it. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> what, what are you protesting against? I mean, but yeah, there, I, I recognize the, the political meanings behind that. But yet we should also recognize that that was a chance for a holy fast. You know, it, the whole fasting for meat is not just a environmental issue. It's also a spiritual issue. It's allowing us to recognize that it is a gift and that we can fast for it for holy reasons. 
Yeah, so often, you know, in this conversation, there's so many uh, ways in which the Christian message is better than the secular message of environmentalism simply because it's deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's often, you know, like not just in environmentalism, there's often a tendency in which we pit the church against the world in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So like um, as if as if as Christians, we should reject whatever, um, you know, secular society might say in this case about protecting the environment, about the rights of man or whatever. It's it's usually that the what the world says is is insufficiently deep, insufficiently developed, as opposed to the wealth that can be gained from our Christian tradition, that the the Christian tradition goes beyond whatever it is that secular morality at, at a certain point might argue for. Yeah, and I think no better example of that than actually the last bullet point that you have here is on the technocratic paradigm. That's a great example of where Christian spirituality should enhance the conversations that have been going on for, for decades about you know the impact of technology on our society. Right. One of the dangers I think the secular discourse falls into, because I, I you know, watching fairly closely the secular discourse on environmentalism. And one thing I've noticed is that it's increasingly failing to shake off what Pope Francis calls a technocratic paradigm, which he would say is an important part of the ecological conversion that's needed to ensure that um, to ensure that the earth is protected and to ensure that we have a healthy relationship to God, which is ultimately more important. I mean, that's that too, that there's that deeper level that, you know, it's of course, it's terrible if we destroy the earth in the here and now, but Pope Francis would see in one sense, the destruction of the earth as a dangerous indicator that our spiritual lives are off balance. And that, mm-hmm. of course, that threatens eternal consequences that in the, in the dying of the world, we see how many souls must have um, been dead inside to, to bring things to this point. So yes, the, the technocratic paradigm, it's a very complex topic, uh, probably the most complex of the topics uh, that fall under the idea of an ecological conversion. Yeah, would you even have a definition of it? I mean, <laughs> could you define technocratic paradigm? <laughs> Let's see, I think there was a good one in here. I just got to find it. Um, so I think uh, two, two quotes perhaps sum it up pretty well from Pope Francis here. First, this is now moving into chapter three, where he starts talking about technology. And of course, he first points out, you know, technology is a, like, in and of itself, seems like it's a good thing, right? You know, there's been great advances made. You know, none of us want to go back to a world where, you know, infectious diseases are killing people due to a lack of sanitation or anything like that. So we're not, um, we're not just having a knee-jerk reaction to technology. But he's pointing out that in the modern world, there's two problems. In uh, point 105, he says, There's a tendency to believe that every increase in power means an increase in progress itself, an advance in security, usefulness, welfare, and vigor, and assimilation of new values into the stream of culture, as if reality, goodness, and truth automatically flow from technological and economic power as such. So that's like the first problem is that we are are too eager for new technology. We're too uncritical of new technology. We just assume that like, well if there's a new way to do a thing, it should be grasped. And, and Americans have always perhaps had that problem very clearly. And then the second point, though, is, is a little deeper. It's a little further on in, in point 107, where he says, it may, could be said that many problems of today's world stem from the tendency, at times unconscious, 
to make the method and aims of science and technology a paradigm which shapes the lives of individuals and the workings of society. The effects of imposing this model on reality as a whole, human and social, are seen in the deterioration of the environment. But this is just one sign of a reductionism which affects every aspect of human and social life. We have to accept that technological products are not neutral, for they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles and shaping social possibilities along the lines dictated by the interests of certain powerful groups. Decisions which may seem purely instrumental are in reality decisions about the kind of society we want to build. And then a little further on in 108, he says, The technological paradigm has become so dominant that it would be difficult to do without its resources and even more difficult to utilize them without becoming dominated by their internal logic. It has become countercultural to choose a lifestyle whose goals are even partly independent of technology, of its cost and its power to globalize and make us all the same. So uh, Pope Francis does not develop this aspect of the encyclical as much as I would have been interested in, in seeing him do. But I think the, I think the, the bones are there. And um, for people who, who want a, a more in-depth explanation of, of some of these ideas, um, the book Technopoly by Neil Postman is, is a good one in, the se- in one sense. He la- Neil Postman lays out the, um, the problems very well. He does not lay out the solutions very well because he himself is not drawing from the, the resources of the Christian tradition. But I think, I think it can be grasped when Pope Francis is saying that technology is not a neutral thing after all. Um, it's not um, just a matter of using technology in the right way, that every technology has an inner logic built into it, um, which will ensure that it is used in a certain way, if not by every individual, by enough individuals in a society so that it will have a certain effect. Um, Neil Postman uh, draws a very interesting comparison to the printing press, a fairly simple technology, you'd think. Um, but he said, when you had the printing press, you did not have the old order of Europe plus the printing press. You had a completely new Europe. Um, for instance, like the Protestant Reformation would have taken a very different form without the um, ability to mass produce both the Bible and also, you know, polemical tracts, um, whole orders of political uh, political orders, philosophic and religious orders went down. Whole new conceptions of what it meant to be an educated and civilized human being came to the fore. The printing press changed everything about the European way of life. And that was a fairly low power technology. So that when we look at technologies, we have to always be trying to figure out what are their internal um, logic? What will they do? To a society, and and therefore it opens the possibility that some, you know, like with every technology, then you gain something and lose something. With the printing press, we can say, well, you know, eventually society assimilated it, and what we lost is counterbalanced by what we gained. We could say, but there's at least a possibility that some technologies have an inner logic that is fundamentally um, unacceptable, and that will, no matter what we do with them, that they will drive. Um, action to such an extent that they're not compatible with human flourishing. And so this, this part of conversion requires a different look at technology and uh, to make a sort of pun 
to make sure that technology is not in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. that we are in the driver's seat and decide how much we're going to let technology influence our lives. Yeah, and I think that's the paradigm part of it. Paradigm is almost the key word for me of technological paradigm. It means it's something that's not exactly what it seems like it is. And that's what a lot of technology is. I mean, we can go back to the examples of, you know, the invention of, you know, things like dynamite, the invention of, um, uh, or or the the, uh, um, discovery of nuclear radiation, right? (laughs) A lot of those things were not intended to be dangerous or disastrous inventions or, or um, observations. And yet the world turned it into that. The technology has a ways of getting used for in, in ways that we don't intend it to be used. Things are not always the way they seem. We might have good out of a lot of technology. We just have to, as Christians, recognize the inherent um, danger in adopting it and having letting it control our lives. We have to, I think that's the biggest thing for me is that is my life so tied and wrapped around a piece of technology that if I didn't have it today, I would be completely lost or could I not go on living? I mean, there's some, some real serious uh, spiritual meaning behind that, right? It's really even hard to think about that because and, and I think Pope Francis makes that very clear. He even says that the idea of promoting the idea that um, technology is a mere instrument is nowadays inconceivable. He says it's not even conceivable. We can't even think about that anymore as a new technology being just a pure instrument. It, it's always going to turn into a cultural shift now. Every new technology ultimately changes society in, the, in very adverse and positive ways. And we have to... Um, be willing to recognize the good. We have to recognize that it should not control us. We, we have to recognize that the Christian model is one of, you know, abstaining from letting things controlling our lives. Um, but ultimately, a lot of that is that conversion that we started off talking about. It's that conversion that we should so, so much want to be in fraternity with our brother and with God, the creator, that we look at them first, we look at our brothers, we look at God first, before we look at our technology. That's one of my problems is that I tend to use my phone too much. And I recognize that myself. And I think that's a problem across a lot of society nowadays. Um, But we have to keep working, we have to seek um, some kind of a spiritual perfection that uh, comes from our from our spirituality, with God, the creator. And, you know, this is um, a tie back into the whole purpose of this, this website project is that to, you know, many of these steps of ecological conversion are possible by oneself, but they're all a lot easier with a community that, that thinks likewise. Mm-hmm. And as far as the technological paradigm goes, it's almost impossible to break out of it. I think without um, a community that that wish to do so. So, for instance, um, one one of the most alarming aspects, I guess, of, of current technology is that they tend to the technology, oddly enough, reshapes the world to make itself essential. Which again seems like this is the thing. I mean, like it, it, 
seems that technology should not have the ability to do anything by itself, <laughs> but it does. And um, so, like for instance, the the invention of the internal combustion engine and its um, application in the automobile. The you know when it when it started out, it was a handy device to get across large areas of ground quickly, and it managed to reshape our world such that now one can't get across, uh, you know, a significant can't get across the distances one needs to get across in daily life without using it. It reshaped our whole social order. It reshaped the way we built our cities. It reshaped so many things about our culture to the point where they made themselves a necessity mm-hmm. when they weren't at all necessary, you know, a hundred years ago before, you know, like there was just very early models at that point and they were a luxury item for the rich and everyone else got along just fine without them. You know, like some technologies, when they come, they fill an already existing need. So like, you know, better water purification, say people were dying by the thousands from contaminated water. So that was an existing hole in things, but like the the internal combustion engine did not did not fill um, an existing hole. It came and instead shaped a society around itself, such that now you know like our cities are dominated by a piece of technology instead of being dominated by us, by what we would actually prefer. Um, a friend was telling me about this this creepy ad for a new car. And the idea was that it was so comfortable that when you get into your driveway, you'll probably just keep sitting in it, you know, <laughs> and he was saying, but actually, of course, ironically, that's just exactly the case because at a societal level, we're actually no faster than we were before the car came around because <laughs> of the fact that everything is now farther apart. And because we're all now sitting stuck in traffic and because of the fact that we have to work extra to pay for and maintain the car as a society, we're still only going at about the speed of a bicycle. And so like the, the car did not actually like it, it in theory was built as a way to, to speed up transportation. As a matter of fact, as a society, we're no faster than we were before. And, and therefore in one sense, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, I like think about how the, like a protection racket works. Um, the, the mafia creates a problem that then you, they'll, if you pay them, they'll protect you from the problem. <laughs> and our technologies can, can have just that effect on us. They will, they will create a problem that they are essential to fix. I think that's a very good example and, there. Yeah. And, and, but then like, you know, like since we try and we wind these up on a kind of a practical note, it's like, okay, so we need an internal conversion of hearts. So the first step is just to, to look with a certain suspicion on our technology to realize that it's not perhaps as innocent, not perhaps as harmless as, um, not perhaps as adaptable to our will as we had thought, you know, earlier we talked about realizing our creaturely limitations of not having too much arrogance towards the world. Well, in a certain sense, the arrogance of thinking that a piece of technology could is, you know, entirely adaptable to our will just because we made it doesn't mean that it's going to be as flexible as we might want it to be. And then, so like, that's the first step, of course, of internal conversion. But in, in the third episode, which will be coming up here, we'll be discussing how to translate all these aspects of the ecological conversion into real lived action. And that's where we really do need uh, communal support to take those internal, that internal turning towards God uh, and then enflesh it in the world.
Yeah, and I think that um, in in that um, that action is is something that is often the reason we 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 decided to go into the next episode for action is because a lot of times you can say that there are several actions that we can take. Each of them might be wholly in different ways. There's not necessarily one way to solve a problem, and that's okay. And so, but the point is that we must have that conversion to want to change. We must, our conversion must lead to change, to a metanoia. Um, otherwise, we keep on going on the way that we're going to be going. Um, and so my advice really is that, you know, a lot of this, when when I first read it, was kind of foreign to me. And I would, you know, really suggest just praying about it. And if you are suspicious, read through the first three chapters of Laudato Si. You don't even have to read through all of it um, to just get the the gist of what a what Pope Francis is asking us to do in terms of a, a spiritual conversion, an ecological conversion. Um, there's a lot packed into those first two or three chapters, really, that um, are great to pray about, and um, you know, just using it as way and using our christian faith in little ways to change the world that's really what what he's asking us to do you know he's not asking for uh, some major global change to come down from upon high he's asking for us to be that change for us to be the hands and feet on earth um and that's that's where we should start if you know we want to um if we want to go out and keep warm and eat well, as St. James says, we have to be that change that we want to see in the world. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. That's a that's a great place to, to end this episode that, yes, the, the Christian life is, you know, first and foremost interior, but because we're body and soul, anything interior has to, will necessarily flow into the exterior, into how we live our lives. So thanks again so much for joining me today. Thank you.